Good day, everyone. Welcome to the CSU Relentless Gardener podcast. I am Colorado State University horticultural agent, Linda Langelo, and joining me today is Lisa Mason, CSU Extension horticulture agent of Arapahoe County. Now let's get to the heart of it, where we explore today's horticultural topic on Japanese beetles. Hello, Lisa. How are you doing? Doing great. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Well, I can't wait to hear what you have to say about Japanese beetles. So what is a Japanese beetle? So Japanese beetles are an invasive species uh, that came to the United States via nursery stock. And, you know, they have been um, pretty well established on the the eastern part of the United States for a while. Um, But most recently, they have been found in Colorado and their populations have rapidly grown. Uh, So they are a problem because they, the adults feed on over 300 types of plants. So they're very generalist. Um, they, they have, there's a lot of things to munch on in our, our urban landscape. Um, and they're also a unique pest because they have two parts of their life cycle that are, that cause problems. Uh, so the larva actually can feed on or does feed on turf grass roots. And so in some cases in, in areas of really wet turf grass, um, they will, they can cause turf damage. And then once they become an adult beetle, that's when they'll feed on um, a wide variety of plants in the landscape. Where is the Japanese beetle currently found? And I know we don't have it out here yet. So I'm That's not gonna great. I, I'm not gonna hold my breath, but I, I you know. So so where is it found other than here in in the state of Colorado? So they're primarily found along the front range. Uh but different areas have different levels of infestation. So here in the, the South uh, Denver area, we have heavy, heavy Japanese beetle damage. Um, you can also find fairly heavy infestations around Boulder and Pueblo um, and, and that kind of thing. Uh, in other places, you know, for instance, Fort Collins, I anecdotally, I, I hear each year, you know, more and more are found, but I, it's still not... Um, the, the infestation isn't too bad uh, that far north yet. So they, they're around. They're around for sure. Um, you know, and they used to be found in Palisade, um, which is really detrimental to all the, the fruit crops in Palisade. So they were, it's a small community there, and they were able to get together as a town um, and eradicate Japanese beetles from Palisade. And they, they monitor that situation very closely now. Um, but here, you know, along the, especially in the Denver metro area, it's such a large area and there's so much habitat space, um, you know, eradication would probably not be possible. So unfortunately, they're, they're probably here to stay. Yeah, the eradication, the cost to do that would be astronomical. And I don't think like you say, it's just not, it's not going to happen. Yes. And so 
with that in mind, uh, how can homeowners best control Japanese beetle once they've made positive ID? Yeah, so really the the one of the best things you can do is hand pick uh, the the beetles off of your plants. And and I know that sounds tedious, but that's a great way to protect your own plants because what happens is when one beetle starts feeding, um, the, the plant emits a, a scent, a chemical scent that attracts other beetles. And so they're, they're known, they're called aggregation feeders. So they'll start with one and then eventually they'll, they'll be a whole bunch feeding on your plants. So by, by hand picking them off your plants, you can actually, um, that's a great way to protect your individual plants. So a lot of people will knock them off into a bowl of soapy water. Uh, feel free to squish them. You know, that that was a, a myth for a while that uh, if you squished them, that would attract more beetles. That is not true. So you can squish them to, to your heart's content. Um, other people I've heard have been creative. So uh, for instance, if you have grapevines on top of a pergola, um, some people are using like a strong jet of water to knock them down, you know, when it's cool outside and then they, they sweep them up and put them in a bucket of water. So you can, you can be, get creative like that, but, but really handpicking them is the best thing. Um, there are traps available at hardware stores and garden stores. Those are not necessarily a good way to control Japanese beetles. Now, when you put out a trap, there, there's a pheromone in there and it's going to attract hundreds of thousands of beetles. Um, but what you're doing, so you, you might kill, you know, a few hundred beetles, but you're actually attracting that many more beetles to your area. So some, some folks are, are insistent on using traps. And so if, if that's the case, I'd recommend putting them at least 30 feet or more away from your vegetation. And if you have a neighbor that's using traps, make sure it's away from your vegetation as well. Um, some people are planting geraniums to, to try to control them. And geraniums are, are lovely plants. Um, it's not going to hurt anything. Probably not going to provide all that much control them. So, so there's a, there's a research study that shows when they feed on part of the plants, um, it's actually toxic to Japanese beetles, um, that, and in a lab setting, they died in, uh, outdoor setting or I'm sorry. And then, oh, oh gosh, boy, I can't quite remember in one setting the the beetles died. And in another setting, they were, um, able to survive, but you know, they, it was still toxic to them. So, the problem, though, is you could plant lots of geranium plants, but the beetles have so many other plants to feed on. It might, you know, it might not be a great control. But, you know, if you like geraniums, it certainly isn't going to hurt anything. Um, there are also a lot of insecticides available. But what I would caution you is make sure you know what product you're applying on your plants. So, for instance, a lot of the controls are will kill insects non-discriminately. So you want to make sure you're not applying that to blooming flowers that bees and other beneficial insects are visiting. So that first and foremost, um, keep that in mind. There are a couple of products out there that are, that are safe and that target Japanese beetles. Uh, one is it's Bacillus thurniangensis. Uh, it's a variety that specifically kills Japanese beetles. Um, it's usually marketed as like beetle juice. Uh, yeah, beetle juice. 
you have to spray that on your foliage, but it degrades in the sun. So, you know, it might give you maybe up to a week of, of control, but, but maybe not. Uh, so it depends on, you know, that's certainly an option to use, but it may be more feasible for some than others. Um, the other thing is that product will make them sick to their stomach. So they don't, they don't die right away. So if you spray it on your plants, keep in mind, it's, you're going to see them crawling around for a few days, um, but they probably have stopped feeding. Uh, there's another pollinator safe product called uh, a celeprin. And, and that is the, the trade name, um, not the, the active ingredients. Um, a celeprin is a great product. It's pollinator safe, but, but it is um, quite expensive. So it's probably not feasible for, for most homeowners. Uh, so think about, you know, are there blooming flowers on your plants that might limit the options? Um, think about if, you know, products like that are feasible. We have a great fact sheet on the CSU Extension website that outlines all the products available and gives you, you know, the pros and cons um, to help you make a decision if, you know, any of those products would work for you. The other part of control that's important is um, the grubs living in the turf grass. Now, a lot of homeowners are applying grub control and, and, and that's fine. But something to keep in mind is the grubs actually need turf grass to be consistently moist um, in order to survive. So most homeowners typically don't keep their lawn wet enough for the grubs to survive. Um, a lot of times we're seeing grubs breeding on golf courses and parks and, and places like that. So how do you know if you have grubs in your lawn? Well, you can keep an eye on how much you water. You know, if you let the turf dry out in between waterings, you know, not, not enough to damage the grass, but just let the soil dry out in between waterings. That's, um, that can be a safe way to make sure you don't have grubs in your lawn. If you do suspect or wonder if you have grubs on your lawn, um, one thing you can do, it's called a tug test. So you actually tug on the turf grass. And if you have heavy grub feeding, turf grass is going to peel up because uh, the, the grubs have basically severed, you know, by feeding on the roots. So that can be an option. Um, but I will say there are many turf issues Um that mimic grub damage. So, and by far the most common is an irrigation system that doesn't apply water evenly, you know, so there might be some brown spots here and there um, that are difficult to see when the sprinkler is running, but they, they aren't getting quite enough water. So that's another great reason to call the extension office um, if you're having turf issues to figure out is it grubs or is it something else. Um, on that same Japanese beetle fact sheet, you can find a list of grub products and the, the pros and cons. Milky spore, very popular, not very effective. Um, there, there are definitely more effective products out there um, for your lawn. Well, thanks for all that. Uh, I, uh, you know, hope that at some point researchers come up with some sort of solution for this invasive pest. And, you know, if there's something in geraniums, maybe, you know, they'll figure something more out. And as a reminder to all homeowners, when they buy a product, 
read the label, follow the instructions, because it really is the law. The label is the law. And I hate to see for, for something detrimental to happen either to themselves or to their, you know, landscape or, you know, just their neighbor's property or something, you know. So, so is there any hope for the Japanese beetle in, in the areas that it's currently located? So unfortunately, Japanese beetle is here to stay. Um, but there, there is, you know, a couple things to consider. Um, the first one is there are actually a lot of plants out there that are Japanese beetle resistant. Um, so, so conifer trees, um, native, many native plants, uh, and a variety of other annuals and perennials that the beetles do not feed on. So next time you replace a plant, um, consider looking at what varieties might be Japanese beetle resistant and the extension office can help you with that as well. Uh, one example is um, crabapple trees. You know, there's some crabapple trees that are very susceptible and there are others that are not. Dr. Cranshaw actually did a study um, here in Littleton uh, at the Littleton War Memorial Rose Garden and looked, there, there's you know, probably a hundred some varieties of roses at that garden. And he looked at the level of feeding uh, from Japanese beetles and also the level of bee activity. And so the, the short of it is he found uh, a lot of varieties that are, the, the beetles actually don't feed on. So, you know, next time you consider replacing a plant or anything, um, be mindful and maybe pick out a plant that's resistant to Japanese beetles. You know, if you don't have plants in your yard that the beetles feed on, then you don't have to worry about it. And so we'll just have to be mindful of that moving forward. The other thing um, that that I think provides a little bit of hope is Dr. Cranshaw is also doing some biocontrol research. So he has released, um, it's a, it's a, a like a microsporidian into the soil that, um, that kills the grubs. And then he's also released a tachinid fly. And now tachinid flies are parasitoid flies. So the, this specific species of fly targets only Japanese beetles. And so the fly will find a Japanese beetle. The fly lays an egg on the body of the Japanese beetles. And when the, that egg hatches, it actually consumes the adult Japanese beetle. So, um, it could be promising, you know, biocontrols like this take a long time to take hold in the environment. You know, we don't know for sure. It probably won't ever provide complete control, but maybe it could, you know, help a little bit with the, the population. So, so I think those are a couple of things to, to keep in mind. If, you know, the number of beetles in your landscape is, is getting you down. Um, there are a lot of great plant options that don't attract beetles and, and maybe we'll see some success with this biocontrol research. Well, you'll have to keep us updated on that. And is there a current resource that CSU has at the moment with a listing of the plants that Japanese beetles are not interested in? 
Yes. You know, we are creating that resource. So, so colleagues are actually compiling a list of plants, um, and noting if there's heavy Japanese beetle feeding, moderates or little or no feeding. And it's, um, we're looking for plants specifically if you know the variety of plants you have. And so we can, um, if you contact your local extension office, we can get you information on how to submit observations uh, for that. Because cool. right now the only the the only other research is from the the eastern part of the United States that have been dealing with Japanese beetle a lot longer than we have. Well, that would be great. That would be great if if we could hand out a resource to people. That's that's a lot towards the battle of getting rid of these things that were brought here in the first place. And you can't blame the insect, you know, it just, they're doing what they naturally do, survive. Yes. So, well, thank you for all that information. And thanks for joining me today. Well, thank you for having me. You're welcome. And a thank you to the audience for listening. Tune in next time when we get to the heart of the matter on another horticultural topic. 